Thank you so much. It's great to join all of you this evening. I appreciate the opportunity to be here at Colorado College. Uh, President Celeste, I greatly appreciate your hospitality and that of the campus. I am very excited about the State of the Rockies process and the report. I can't think of a better opportunity for a college student to be involved in compiling the kind of information that is found in this report. I think it's valuable for the region, tremendously valuable for the college. So I commend you all on that. Let me begin by telling you something about myself and about my experiences and background and what, what brought me to being here today and to having been at the Department of the Interior. I grew up in Colorado, loved spending weekends in the mountains with my parents, walking through Rocky Mountain National Park, having the chance to, to picnic and hike in the mountains, to be able to observe and see our Colorado Rockies. It was wonderful for me to have the opportunity to grow up being exposed to environmental issues and as a, a young attorney being involved in all kinds of natural resource issues. My first clients as an attorney were ranchers in New Mexico who were dealing with their grazing permits. It was great to come back full circle when I came back to the Department of the Interior. That experience at the Department of the Interior was the opportunity to see the West in the way that very few people have the chance to see it. I think that was an experience that was shared by some of the students who had input into the State of the Rockies report. The experience reminds me of a time when I was camping by myself. I actually embarked on a trip around the western United States by myself. And happened to camp out at a place called Island in the Sky at Canyonlands National Park. Well, this is a picture of that place that doesn't begin to do it justice. I was there camping, and so I went out at about sunset to sit out on this very point above the place where two rivers come together and join. And there's a huge canyon formation there. You can't see anything created by human beings for 60 miles in any direction. I sat there and watched and saw the colors emerge in the canyon, the shades of yellow and purple and brilliant orange and red, and so many different things. What an incredible vista to have. Well, at the Department of the Interior, that was the vista that I felt I had of the West, the opportunity to see so many of the wonderful things of the West. Well, Interior is involved in many things, and many of you may be familiar with all or some of the things that Interior does. It provides water to 31 million people. The Bureau of Reclamation's water irrigates 60% of the produce grown in the United States. The national parks are legendary and spectacular. Wildlife refuges, the largest system of lands anywhere in the world for wildlife. The Bureau of Land Management lands, the working lands of the West, with spectacular recreation opportunities as well. Cleanup uh, and reclamation of coal mines, the greatest geoscience agency of the federal government. 
And above all the challenges, the most difficult of those was dealing with human beings through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, trying to work with the needs of real-life human beings. It's so many different historical issues to draw on and the latest of issues as well. It was a wonderful experience. What I'd like to do today is to share with you some of those experiences, some of the insights I've seen, and some of the issues that were most pressing for us and pressing for the West. I had the chance to think about how we came to this place where we are in conservation today. The United States has a rich history of conservation. Early on, we had people, even when the land had not even been explored, who took steps to conserve the land. Thomas Jefferson actually bought this place, Natural Bridge in Virginia, because he thought it was unique and wanted to preserve it. Early on in our country's history, while many of you have probably never even heard of this, this was viewed as one of the real wonders of the North American continent. And those early preservationists really wanted to preserve areas of land. Teddy Roosevelt, we all know his conservation history and tradition. He was part of that movement of the hunters who really saw wildlife populations beginning to decline and felt they needed to do something about it. And what they did about it was to set aside areas of land for preservation. In the 1960s, we saw a different type of environmental concern and environmental response come in. At that time, we saw smog that was really blanketing our cities. The Cuyahoga River was on fire. Our nation's symbol, the bald eagle, was on the brink of extinction. People stepped in to do something about it. And their responses have had tremendous benefit. Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Superfund, National Environmental Policy Act, they put in place laws that really changed and improved our environment. As a result of those things, we have cleaner air, cleaner water. The bald eagle has recovered. We've seen a lot of improvement in our air quality. I remember what Denver's air looked like in the 1970s. Today, it is so much cleaner. There were also some prices to pay as a result of this approach, because they, they really stepped in and said, we have to take action and we need to move quickly. One of the things that came about from that were laws that, and regulations that said, you have to install this piece of equipment. You have to do X, Y, and Z. They were very prescriptive kinds of approaches. We had laws that were uniform and regulations that were uniform across the country without really adjusting for changes in different areas. The costs were fairly high. It was a very conflict-oriented approach. It really tended to bring out the need for different sides to dramatize what the problems were and to say that their problem, whether it was high costs or pollution problems, was the most dire of circumstances. Well, we're beginning to see that there needs to be some change. This is not something that, that is my new theory. This is, some, this is really an evolution that has occurred in the environmental movement. It realizes that we don't always know all the answers. We can't just choose one course of action and charge down it because there may be some things that are a little bit different than what we may think of today. For example, 
I'll talk about this more later. When we look at forest fires, you know, many of us came, were brought up with the idea of Smokey the Bear, saying only you can prevent forest fires. So we suppressed forest fires, but that led to the trees being more dense than they had ever been naturally, led to more fires, led to less healthy forests. There was a big push for air quality reasons to shift to natural gas. Well, that brought a great demand for natural gas, which raised the, the prices and caused problems for natural gas as it was used for other purposes. In the chemical industry, for example, a great many jobs went overseas because there was a high price of natural gas in North America. Um, we've seen more recently a great deal of concern about climate change. People are more or less concerned, depending on who they are, with the idea of nuclear power being one of those solutions. So there are many things that have a lot of different ramifications. And so as we are looking at solutions, we need to realize the need to take into account that we may not always know all the ramifications of policies. And when you really look at the laws that were passed, although there have been some evolutions and certainly improvements in those laws that recognize this and that get beyond it, if you say, this is what you have to do, you have to install this kind of equipment, if you install that, you are in compliance. Well, that leads to compliance, but it doesn't lead to moving the next step beyond, to finding the better solution. Now, compliance is great if what you want to do is get a speed limit adhered to. But if what you want is innovation and creativity and new solutions, that may not be the best approach. So the newest era in environmental protection is characterized by innovation, by ingenuity, by incentives, by being able to tap into the information that people have. There's specialized kinds of information. Maybe just knowledge of your own community and the lands surrounding your community. And the ability not just to have somebody from Washington tell people what to do and have them comply, but the ability to generate enthusiasm, to get people involved in actually conserving the lands that they care about. Well, at the Department of the Interior, the way we characterized this was as... President Celeste said, uh, the four C's, communication, consultation, and cooperation, all in the service of conservation. That's spread throughout the department. The idea of bringing people together at the local level or the regional level to address real problems, to find solutions that really fit in particular areas. One of the best moments I had at the Department of the Interior was when we brought together people from all across the country who were involved in local community efforts at conservation like this. We had 1,200 people from all across the country representing 1,000 different conservation projects taking place. It was everything from protecting coral reefs in Hawaii to the Nisqually River in Washington State to work taking place in Alaska and Florida. It was people who were enthused about their local efforts. Of course, we didn't get quite as much coverage as I might have hoped because there was a certain hurricane that came into New Orleans that same week. 
But um, it, was, it was a great moment nevertheless. A great example of what can take place, and a pretty straightforward example, is in western Colorado at McKinnis Canyons. And that was a place that was fairly recently designated as a national conservation area. What they did was bring people together to put together a plan for the area and to come up with a way of reconciling some of the conflicts that might occur. For example, there were people who wanted to hike, people who wanted to horseback ride. Well, the people who wanted to hike were not too crazy about having the horses be on the same trail that they were. And so they set aside different trails for horses and for hikers. They had those who wanted to, use, to do mountain biking. And again, they found areas that fit for them. It was by setting people down together and trying to find solutions. They found a way to accommodate the ranchers in the area, again, by trying to, to figure out how things could coexist. Let me give you an example. And I, I apologize, this is is pretty simplistic, but um, I think it, it gets the point across. One of the greatest challenges that we dealt with at the Department of the Interior, one of the most conflict-oriented programs, is the Endangered Species Act. Now, this is one of those things that when you mention endangered species, you get a strong reaction from people one way or the other. Some people love the idea. Some people have their own very strong sentiments in opposition. Well, if you take a couple of tree farmers, we have Farmer Friendly and Tree Farmer Grumpy. Well, on each of their lands, we have an endangered species or threatened species that is found in the southeastern United States, the red cockaded woodpecker. And each of them, we'll say, has four woodpeckers on their property. Well, Farmer Friendly is a very good steward. He does everything possible to help out the woodpeckers. Farmer Grumpy, however, takes an all-too-common approach and does the common phrase of shoot, shovel, and shut up. Now, this is illegal, but how often is somebody really going to get caught? Well, what happens a few years later? Let me... Well, let me just say, you know, obviously then Farmer Friendly has lots of woodpeckers. Farmer Grumpy has none. So what happens a few years down the line when the farmers want to harvest some of their trees? Well, Farmer Grumpy has no woodpeckers on his property. So there's no restriction. And that means he can go ahead and harvest his trees. Farmer Friendly, who did the good stewardship thing, can't harvest his trees and so suffers economically. Well, that produces exactly the wrong incentives. When uh, I was secretary, I went to South Dakota and met with a large group of farmers who were concerned about the idea that prairie dogs might get listed as an endangered species. And they told me that in South Dakota, when the rumors started going around that prairie dogs might become listed as endangered species, the sale of prairie dog poison doubled. That's exactly the wrong incentive. 
Well, there are lots of things you can do to change that incentive structure. And these are things that have been discussed with support on both sides of the political aisle. And these are a whole list of things that, you know, I don't want to go into each of the programs. But, for example, the private stewardship grants gave very small amounts of money, but were able to provide funding to enhance habitat for endangered species. Perhaps it was removing invasive species to restore the habitat that's natural for endangered species. Perhaps it was to put up a fence along a riverfront that was being trampled by cattle so that the riverfront could be restored. It had a great deal of res response in the public because people wanted to do things to protect endangered species. So it really tapped into the, the natural enthusiasm that people have. Uh, safe harbor agreements basically protect somebody like Farmer Friendly who does good things on their property. And so they're not penalized if there are restrictions that come into place later on. But it still encourages people to do the right thing. Uh, conservation banks are the ability to have a lot of mitigation and habitat enhancement take place in a concentrated area. There are lots of, of creative ways of trying to allow people to benefit from having endangered species on their property or at least not be penalized. So those really change the incentives. I have a great example here in Colorado. This is uh, with a bird called the mountain plover, which has a habit of wanting to nest in farmers' fields. Well, that, of course, can be disastrous if you have farmers coming through and plowing the fields just when the plovers are nesting. And so the Audubon Society, wildlife agencies, farmers came together, came up with a very common-sense solution. About 72 hours before they'd want to plow a field, farmers would call in, a bird expert would come out, check the land, see if there were any nests, if there were, they put a flag next to the nest. The farmer would then plow the field but give a wide berth to the nest to avoid disturbing the birds. Very common sense, better for the birds and better for the farmers. That's the kind of creative approach that you can find if you get people to sit down together and find out how to, how to work through their problems. Let me, let me move to a different area. And that's the area of forest health. You know, if any of you have driven through the Colorado Rockies, you've seen how many dead trees we have. I can say those forests look a lot different than they did when I was a kid walking through them. You know, today I see so many more dog-haired pines, you know, those pines that are growing so close together you know that it's not healthy. They're just spindly little trees. You see so much more disease and insect kill throughout our mountain areas. So this is something, a great deal of concern for all of us just because we love our mountains, but even more as you get more people moving right into the middle of the forest so that it becomes even harder to use fire as a tool in order to manage the forest. Forest managers would love to restore fire to its natural place, to be able to, to use fire regularly to clean out the forest, as they usually have done. 
If you have trees that are too densely together, when you have a fire in that area, you end up with a crown fire like this, one that goes from tree to tree and kills off even the largest of the trees. I went to an area in Oregon where there had been a fire two years before. And I've never seen anything like it. The, the forest floor, where usually you would see plants springing up after a fire, the forest floor had been so completely cooked because the fire was so intense that there still wasn't a single living blade of grass or plant seedling anywhere in that forest floor. If you look at fire in a more natural kind of area where fire has been coming through on a regular basis, where the trees are not packed together, it's more like this. You've got just fire going along the, the ground, not killing the big trees, just taking out the extra undergrowth and leaving open spaces between the trees. Um, on a, an earlier trip to Oregon, I went with President Bush to an area that was at the, the top of a mountain, and it was an area where a forest fire had gone through just a short time, you know, about a week before. There were still places that were, were warm. You could hear the embers still crackling. And on one part of the mountain, there was an area that had been dense forest, and it looked like this. It had been completely burned and completely charred. But in another part of the mountain, They'd gone in and cleared out some of the excess trees and excess underbrush. And the fire, when it went through, looked like a fire going through a more natural forest. And when we looked, I mean, you can see there still are, there are places that um, have been burned. Maybe you can't see them as well in this picture. This is an area where the fire actually went through. The same fire, and these are just a few hundred yards apart. And in this forest, the big trees were still standing. So it can make a tremendous amount of difference, the way in which forests are managed. And it is a really serious challenge that we face because we are seeing some changes, climate-related changes that allow the insects to have more of a, a devastating effect. I was just at a conference a uh, week before last, listening to some forestry professors talking about the current situation with our forests. And somebody said, isn't there some natural predator for the pine beetle that we could introduce to try and take care of this? And one of the professors said, well, the, the natural predator is sustained 25 degree below temperatures. We're just not seeing that today. So the challenges of managing our forests have become even more intense. The forestry program that we labored to put into effect at Department of Interior, along with the Department of Agriculture and the Forest Service, would be to work at the community level with people to identify areas of forest that ought to be thinned, and to find ways of making this a self-sustaining process so that it could be carried on year after year. You can't just do it once and move along. In many areas, you can thin things out, get them to something like natural, and then you can reintroduce fire and start using fire after that to be able to maintain it in that condition. In some areas, you're, you're too close to homes to be able to do that. 
that is, is a challenge that you know, may someday involve biomass energy. Uh, we worked with the National Renewable Energy Lab on a project to see if you could use, if you could find some way of using the dead trees or the overcrowded trees in a forest for renewable energy so that you could have biomass energy paying to sustain the forests in the way in which they need to be treated. Now, one of the biggest challenges for the West, of course, is our lack of water. Now, we dealt with that constantly through the Bureau of Reclamation, needing to see how we could make the water stretch further to meet the needs of increasing populations. We saw that those places that had the highest population increases were the places that were driest. Nevada, 66% a year, I mean, a, a decade population growth. Arizona, 40%. Many other parts of the West, 30%. These uh, areas that are in red are the areas that were identified as having the highest potential for real conflict and crisis in the years coming up. As you can see throughout the West, we have lots of areas that may be yellow or orange that also have the potential for a great deal of conflict. But again, there are lots of things you can do to try to resolve those conflicts and try to bring people together to find solutions. We had a small grant program that we started that basically gave out grants on the order of $200,000, $300,000 to irrigation districts to do things to make their irrigation more efficient. There was things like just uh, lining canals, what had been dirt ditches, put in concrete liners or plastic liners that prevented so much of the water from soaking into the soil or evaporating or using sprinkler systems or other ways of trying to make the water go further in irrigation. What that meant was that through these efficiencies, we could free up 30 to 50% of the water that was being used by those irrigation districts. That meant the farmers could continue to thrive. It meant that water was available for cities or for conservation needs. It allowed us to have a better utilization of water throughout the West. Now, those were just small experiments, but the amount of water that was saved by those experiments was really astounding to me. There are lots of opportunities for it. If you have something like a water bank, where, where basically you are letting a city pay farmers to improve the irrigation, um, you've got marketing of water. You've got water that might be set aside for release for conservation purposes when it's especially needed by fish, but otherwise could be used for irrigation. You know, to have more interconnection between the various areas of the water-using system, those kinds of solutions were able to really make a difference, both for agriculture and for communities. And then, of course, there's conservation. Now, that's, that's one of my favorite. There's some great examples. Uh, in Las Vegas, they, of course, encouraged xeriscaping. We're all familiar with that. They started paying people a dollar a square foot 
to rip out their Kentucky bluegrass lawns and replace them with xeriscaping. That was cost effective. They figured those lawns were using 55 gallons of water a year for each of those square feet. The uh, Denver Water Board was one of my favorite conservation efforts. They used humor. I, I liked their humor. Was, of course, you've heard this one, save water, shower with a friend. Brush every other tooth. Real men dry shave. And my favorite, for those of us here in Colorado who really understand Colorado traditions, no water, no beer. So there are lots of things you can do in order to conserve our water. And I believe very strongly in the cooperation that we have. So I appreciate the opportunity to share with you some of my views about what we can do to work together to make our environment, the mountains and the plains and the Rockies that we love, into a place that is stronger and better for generations to come. Thank you.